We've had a technological miracle, and the screens are back up. John chapter 20. We've been in John for a while now, and so for Holy Week, I've decided to stay in John and pick some um, appropriate passages for uh, the days that we celebrate. And I'm mindful this morning, on this Easter morning, that it's quite possible to believe something, to possess a truth in a way that is purely academic and intellectual. It is possible to have taken hold of some facts without those facts having having taken hold of you. I think about that often, and I mention it often, especially when I'm speaking to people in terms of Christ's death on the cross. You can believe that as historical fact, that Jesus died on a cross, that He was paying the penalty for sins. You can know that and you can believe it to be true without it ever changing your life. This week, I was thinking about how the same thing is true regarding the resurrection. You can believe as historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead that Easter morning. You can possess the fact without that fact ever possessing you and changing you and transforming you. That only happens by God's grace. We're something that we know in our head travels those crucial 18 inches or so down into our hearts and grabs hold of us never to let go again. That is my prayer this morning. That has been my prayer all week. I certainly hope you do believe in the reality of the resurrection. But more than that, I hope the reality of the resurrection grabs hold of you this morning in a new way in a transforming way. And and to that end, in the passage we're looking at, we're going to look at Easter evening instead of Easter morning. Right? Go back later this afternoon, read about the stone rolled away, read about the angel, read about the first appearances and conversations between the risen Christ and and His folks. But this morning, we're going to look instead at what happened later that night. A little less familiar, perhaps. As we look at it, we're going to see five amazing realities that the resurrection brings about. I want to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. It's just five verses this morning. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. May God bless the preaching of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. We've already prayed and asked for His assistance, so please have a seat. Five realities the resurrection brings. 
realities that I pray will leave a lasting impact on all of us. They're listed in your worship folder, all nice and neat, and up on the screen, as if they were five separate, discrete things. But the reality is they're very intertwined and interconnected, and there's a whole lot of overlap. So if you're one taking notes and you find yourself thinking, well, gosh, which point does this fit under? Uh, Welcome to my struggle all week long. I'm going to try more or less to tackle these in the order that they show up in our verses, but again, lots of overlap. The first on the list, the first resurrection reality is the presence of the risen Christ. Verse 19, all of a sudden, Jesus was present with his disciples. He stood among them. Now, Jesus coming to his disciples that night, his being present with them is important, and it's significant for a number of reasons. The first of which is, how did he get in there? The doors were locked. John makes sure to point that out. They were locked, and all of a sudden, there he is with them. Y'all, that's amazing. That is a display of his divine power that the disciples should have come to expect by this point from Jesus. Now, John doesn't give us any additional insight as to exactly how Jesus did that. Perhaps he just passed right through the door or through the wall. I love C.S. Lewis' take on this in The Great Divorce, that this doesn't mean he was some type of disembodied spirit, that he wasn't real But what it could perhaps mean is that he was more real. He was now more real than that door and those locks. Doesn't mean that he was a spirit without a body. No, Jesus still has a body even to this day. Later verses beyond our passage this morning in helping Thomas with his doubts, he's going to tell him, hey, touch right here. Put your hand right in here. It's not likely that Jesus would say that only for Thomas' hand to go whoosh right through him. Another one of the Gospels uh, tells us that Jesus showed up and said, Hey, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? Right? It would be really weird to watch a piece of fish pass through a spirit. No, Jesus has a body and some miraculous way he was there with them. Now the second thing noteworthy about his presence with them, verse 20 it says that he shows them his wounds. See my hands? That would be common with any crucified person. See my side? Well that's a little different. That was a wound unique to Jesus. But he volunteers this. He's eager for them to believe it's him. To see the proof of life that reminds them that he was their sacrifice. Sacrifice on their behalf. Now note what his presence does for them. It makes them glad. That's a welcome emotion for sure given the last 72 hours. After the grief the confusion, the heartache, so much fear. Oh, they're glad. Jesus knew that would be the effect. That's why he came. That's why he was present with them. 
and very closely related to his presence is this second resurrection reality to consider that of peace. The first word out of his mouth. Now, it's a common enough greeting that you would show up and you would say, peace be with you. But for Jesus to say it in this setting and to repeat it, because he's going to say it again in verse 21, well, that means something. That means something special. So what does it mean? On the most basic level, I'm sure his sudden appearing, though the doors were locked, that had to be a wee bit startling. So on the most basic level, it's peace, don't freak out. (laughs) It's okay. But there's so much more. Right? It's peace. I know that you are so afraid. You've been hiding in this room with the door bolted shut because you fear for your life. Right? Their leader had just been executed by this cooperating coalition of religious leaders and Roman officials. It's no far stretch for them to be concerned for their own safety, to think, you know, at any minute, what if they decide to come after his followers? What if they want to start picking us off one by one just to make sure? Peace, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Jesus comes, he says, he offers peace. That's something he had promised to do. That's something he had promised to give to his disciples. Uh, John 14, uh, 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Two chapters later, 1633 says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And so he shows up that night. And that's the first word out of his mouth, fulfilling his promise. Now what else might peace mean why might that be the very first word that he speaks when he comes into that room when he sees his disciples what were the disciples doing the last time that he saw them the last thing jesus saw of his disciples were their backs as they were running away as they were deserting him Surely they were wondering, is he mad at us? That would be fair. We deserve it. What's he going to do? Will we get what we deserve? But the first word out of his mouth is, is peace. It's okay. I get it. I understand. This whole interaction between Jesus and his disciples is so gentle, so full of grace. Now there's another aspect to this piece that is, that is huge. Jesus brings with him into that room on Easter evening the peace that his suffering and resurrection has accomplished. And so here's a really good example of the overlap here. All right, The overlap here of peace and with our last one on the list of pardon. But, but suffice it to say for now, Jesus says, peace be with you. 
Because that's just what he has finished accomplishing. Uh, Colossians 1, uh, as Paul is praising all of who Christ is and what he has done, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross, his bloody death on the cross and his glorious resurrection that very morning has defeated for all time our great enemies of sin and death. These are the things that created in the first place a situation of war, of enmity, the absence of peace, the presence of conflict between God and mankind. Jesus has now accomplished and now offers to His followers peace. Reconciliation with God the Father. Now that this peace has been accomplished, it's been offered to them, they can be sent out with great purpose. Our third resurrection reality there in your list. Verse 21. Now, We've already seen a little of this in the time that we've spent in John thus far. We'll continue to see it even more. How absolutely clear Jesus makes it that he doesn't come on his own authority. He doesn't come with his own plan, with his own agenda. No, he comes because the Father sent him, and he comes to accomplish the Father's will, not his own. With authority, the Father has sent the Son. In that same way, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, in that same way, now I'm sending you with authority to accomplish my will. Now, it's appropriate for us to think about this sending in two ways. There's there's two things going on here. The immediate context, the recipients of this sending out, Who are they? Well, they're the now ten disciples in that room at the time. Judas is gone, and we find out later that Thomas isn't there with them for whatever reason. So there's ten disciples there, these men that Jesus chose, spent his three years of ministry with, and he's sending them out with the special and the specific and the unique intent To establish the church after His return to the Father. To lead, to teach, to preach, to heal, to receive God's Word as it is breathed out and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it down and record it for us. They had some specific and unique tasks to do which don't carry over to us in exactly the same way. The church is established God's Word is complete, right? There's no new revelation to record or write down. It's finished, right? He has said, finally, in Jesus, everything that needs to be said. So in that sense, their being sent out by Jesus was unique. But in another way, it applies to every single one of us. We are all sent out with the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death, as our substitute, and of his glorious sin and death-defeating resurrection. Y'all, without the resurrection, we are purposeless people. 
but because he triumphed over our greatest enemies. We've got a purpose. We've got good news to proclaim. And so this one also overlaps both with peace that came before it and with pardon that comes after it. Right? Because of the peace, the reconciliation we've now experienced. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hang on. Fourth on your list. In order for the disciples to accomplish their unique purpose, in order for us to accomplish our purpose, we all need power. We all need enabling. None of us is equal to our task or our mission. Verse 22, Jesus promised multiple times, notably in chapters 14 and 16 of of John, that his followers would receive help. They're not going to be left alone. They're going to receive power. And so this also overlaps with presence. (laughs) Um, This verse, 22 comes with a few question marks. Um, First of which is, wait a minute. I thought the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2 after Christ ascended. Did the disciples get it early? Sneak preview before it was actually released. Um, And there are roughly 99 different explanations given. I have distilled them down for you, and I'm just going to suggest one and give you a few reasons for that one suggestion. This breathing of Jesus here, this instruction to receive the Spirit, I think that it's best examine the Scriptures for yourselves. Make up your own minds. I think it's best to view this as, as symbolic in the moment, and further promising and pointing to that reality that does occur recorded in Acts 2 when Jesus ascends back to the Father. Now, why do I think that? Here's the strongest reason for believing that Jesus is still pointing to something future and it hasn't yet happened. Because when you look at the disciples, there's no immediate change in their lives. If they got the Holy Spirit at that moment, then their behavior in the next few days would be puzzling, to say the least. Right? They're still very much afraid. Eight days later, they're still locked in that same room. (laughs) Some of them go back to their old jobs. None of them is preaching, teaching, proclaiming, healing. They're still really struggling. But contrast that to what happens recorded in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit does come. Is there a difference? And they're on fire. They're preaching with power. People are coming to faith in Christ by the thousands. A church gets rolling and all kinds of things are happening. It makes a tremendous difference in everything. That's my biggest reason for thinking that that what Jesus is saying there in verse 22 is is still future-oriented. It's still pointing toward what's what's to come. Uh, Some smaller factors. uh, Y'all, Thomas isn't there, it says. He just get left out in the cold. Um, and, And there are several other things when you read back through John 
that sounds sort of immediate when you read it on the surface level, but then you think, oh, well, that didn't happen that instant either. Uh, I mentioned last week, John 12, Jesus finally says, my hour has come. We know that his hour, that he's been saying that about, is, is his death and his glorification in being crucified for us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he says, my hour has come. He does not then instantly die. He's not then instantly taken to the cross. There's still some more things that transpire in between that. Uh, some other things. Uh, he, he talks about his being glorified. Right? Well, that comes when he's lifted up on the cross, but not instantly. So uh, I think that it's best to see this as symbolic, maybe even as an acted out parable in the moment. Think about his breathing. right? Because the, the third person of the Trinity is more than just Jesus expelled air. Right? But he's acting out a parable. He's giving us a symbol to think about this, right? He's breathing out his power, his life, his presence, his enabling. So I do believe that it's symbolic and still pointing to the future. But even though it doesn't happen in an instant, it does happen. And it is absolutely necessary for them and for us to receive power that we, that we might live in and fulfill our purpose, right? And so here's where this promise of the Holy Spirit is a big overlap with his presence that we talked about earlier. Because even after Jesus is no longer bodily present with the disciples, he's promised that he's going to be with them. He's never been bodily present with us, but he's promised to be with us, and that is through his Spirit. We now arrive at our fifth and final P. Pardon. Verse 23. This first struck me a little odd when I first began working through the passage. Are, are the disciples going to be the ones forgiving sin? That's an important question to consider, but shelve it for just a minute because there's something more important to consider. The most important thing to consider is that forgiveness, pardon, is now a reality, is now a possibility because of the resurrection. Pardon exists. It's possible. It's available. Pardon for sins and a peace that endureth, we sang about earlier. Right? And, and so this one, y'all, this one connects nearly to all the other ones. This is when, if you know, your outline might really become a mess as you're taking notes. The peace that is possible between us and God, the foundation of that peace is pardon, is the forgiveness of our sins. It was our sin that caused us to naturally, out of the womb, not have peace with God. But when sin is taken care of, when it is atoned for, paid for, when Jesus has taken our punishment for it, absorbed and drank down to the dregs the cup of God's wrath for it in our place, then and only then can we have peace. Can we be reconciled to God? Now, a passage that really helped me sort of wrap all this up together 
and deal with a bit of that question from 23 of, well, what's the disciples' role in this? Or are, are they forgiving sin? 2 Corinthians 5. Very helpful. Um, start in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and get this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I think that's a great way to describe, to label what's going on there in verse 23. That's what Jesus is telling them. That's why he's sending them out to engage in this ministry of reconciliation. They're not reconciling man to God. Jesus did that. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. That is, let me explain. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If you forgive, they're forgiven. If you withhold, forgiveness is withheld. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I think that is exactly what's going on here in verse 23. Right? The disciples don't forgive sins or withhold forgiveness of sins, and we certainly don't. Only Jesus does that. But that is the function of the message of reconciliation. That is the function of the gospel message itself. If you present the gospel and the person responds when they hear that message, they respond with repentance and belief, then guess what? Their sins are forgiven. If you withhold that message of reconciliation, if you withhold the gospel... Guess what? No forgiveness of sins there. A friend, both parts of that truth need our attention. Pardon, forgiveness of sin is available. That's a reality of the resurrection. Christ's triumph over the grave means that sin and death are defeated and you can be forgiven. You can have your record wiped clean. But the other side of that same coin is tragic. See, you must respond to that offer. You must respond in repentance and faith. You must turn from that sin and embrace and cling to the free gift of Jesus, believing that He suffered in your place. If you do, if you will, then these resurrection realities are yours. They are yours. The same presence, the same peace, the same purpose and power given to the disciples that night in that room come to you and to me when you have experienced the pardon for your sins. Let's pray. Father, again, the the request is 
that these truths from your word, these realities, of course would be believed as such, but Father, that they would also sink deep down and grab hold of us and not let go of us and change our lives, that we might live as a people who you're really present with, that we might live with a people that peace has already been accomplished for us. It's not left up to us to do. That we might live as a people with both a purpose and the power necessary to fulfill that purpose. All because, Jesus, you purchased for us our pardon. You were punished for us. You absorbed the wrath, the just wrath of God that was headed our way. You intercepted it. You took it for us. Oh, Holy Spirit, come even in these moments and cause these resurrection realities to sink deep down. And change us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please.